Welcome once again to the Hit the Deck podcast, where we talk deck hockey, street hockey, ball hockey. It's hockey in sneakers. Thank you once again for tuning in to the third episode of the Hit the Deck podcast. Let's get to the starting lineup. In goal, I am number 35, the American Rhino, Gary McComiskey, and of course, my illustrious co-host. On defense, number four, I'm James Sajazi. Hello, James Sajazi. How are you, sir? Pretty good. How about yourself, Mr. Rhino Mac? Yeah, I'm still a little under the weather, but overall, I can't complain. Happy to be doing another podcast. And thank you to all the listeners who have stuck with us for the first few. Yeah, does this count as a hat trick in terms of <laughs> Yeah, I think so. We've, we've, we've successfully released a podcast three weeks in a row. That's a, that's a podcast hat trick. Nice. All right. We've made it this far. I'm glad. Hopefully, there's a few more ahead of us as well. <laughs> yeah, here's hoping. All right. So, why don't we... Go ahead and uh, you tell us what's on deck, if you do not mind. Not at all. And here's what's on deck. Thank you, Gary. Leading off, we have the Miracle on Ice 36th anniversary. February 22nd and 24th marks the 36th anniversary of the U.S. hockey team's incredible victories. Then we'll go on the road again, prepping for unfamiliar deck hockey playing areas, such as on the street and or asphalt or in a school gym, or on tile, or in a roller hockey rink with boards, etc., etc. And then we'll take a peek into the gear bag where we will talk about the hockey wraparound. And that is what's on deck. Thank you, James. My pleasure. Uh, Thank you. No, no. No, thank you. No, (laughs) no, thank you. You know what? Thank you very much. A few too many passes there, so hopefully we... Take the shot! No, yeah, like the Rangers power play. All right. So, you know, why don't we get started with our first segment, the anniversary of this call. Unbelievable Unbelievable indeed. It was, oh, it's been a long time since I was in school. What did you say the math was? 36 years? Yeah, 36. 36 years since a team of scrappy American college students beat uh, a team of all but professional Soviet players, the best team in the world. Amen to that, yeah. February 22nd was the game where they beat the Russians 4-3. to three. And then on the uh, 24th is when Team USA beat Finland to win the gold. So, yeah, just absolutely incredible. To this day, it, it, it still ranks up there as one of the, probably the greatest sports moment ever. At least in America, I think in in, in the world. So, uh, if I may, may be so bold. but You may, I'll allow it. Yeah. All right, cool. Thank you. Um, And, you know, a lot of people forget that the Russian, the uh, Soviet team was not the gold medal game. Like you said, they had to beat Finland as well. Yes, exactly. That's one of the reasons why I just wanted to mention the uh, 22nd and 24th, which the 22nd happened to be my grandmother's birthday and the 24th happens to be my mom's birthday. So a couple of other things true to my heart as well. So uh, but yeah, exactly. A lot of people just assume that uh, being Mets fans here in in New York, we go through the same thing with the 86 World Series as well, where people thought that uh, the Buckner play, which didn't even have an effect on the win or loss of that particular game, people just assume that was the World Series winner right right there. Right, right. right. No, that was game six. That's right. That was only game six and uh, which was a win or go home game for the Mets anyway but yeah for Team USA that's right they beat the Russians which was just absolutely off the charts for uh, American patriotism especially at that particular time in the country's history but right if they didn't beat Finland a couple of days later they might not have even won any medal uh, as it turned out with the way the seedings were so uh, it really 
not taking away from the, the significance of beating the Russians besides the hockey point of view, but exactly um, not finishing it off and winning the gold really would have left a sour taste in the mouths of that team. Yeah, apparently Herb Brooks, who was the coach of that team, I, I don't believe this was included in the uh, miracle movie that Disney made about the historic event. But before that Finland game, Herb Brooks told the team, if you lose this game, you will regret it to your grave. I, I appreciate how you clean that up very, very well. Uh, yeah, God bless him. Herb Brooks, Coach Brooks, uh, just equals genius. Uh, God rest his soul. Unfortunately, Coach Brooks passed away in a car accident in August of 2003. Yeah, yeah he was only 66, but will live forever in the hearts of all sports fans. But um, yeah, leading up to what we were going to talk about as well in this topic was HBO did an excellent documentary around the 20th anniversary of the um, Miracle on Ice titled, Do You Believe in Miracles? The yeah, story in, of the sorry. 1980 U.S. hockey team. Yeah, sorry for the interruption. It was in 2001. So that was just over 20 years. Yeah. Gotcha. And right. In, in that documentary, I mean, personally for me, I wasn't even two years old at the time when the, the miracle occurred. But that uh, documentary is excellent. I definitely recommend anyone out there to see it if you haven't before. But right. Like Gary mentioned, that uh, particular speech was relayed. The story was relayed by the captain, Mike Ruzzione. And uh, just there were so many funny bits like that and, and inside stories that I don't know if anybody had known before that documentary. But for Coach Brooks to be that cool and that honest under that amount of pressure is just beyond me. Yeah. And uh, just give you a little perspective. I was not yet born when that game took place. I would yeah, not right. be born until later that year. That's right. So great things. A couple of great things happened in 1980. So yeah, uh, about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right. That documentary again. Do you believe in miracles? The story of the 1980 U.S. hockey team. It is a documentary that's narrated by Liev Schreiber. So it's got that professional HBO documentary gravitas to it. But it's also got a bunch of clips from the actual games uh, like file footage from the games leading up to those olympics and from the olympics themselves which as great as the disney movie was which i guess we'll also talk about in a minute as great as that movie was it didn't have the air of authenticity that this documentary has it i watched it today and i'd never seen it before per james recommendation and i i highly recommend it to you the listener as well but it, it just it it resonates it rings true because it is the actual events and that documentary is available on hbo go currently to anybody who wants to watch it it's uh under the sports section right there near the front if, if you want to watch it and if you're a hockey fan especially an american hockey fan i highly recommend you seek it out if possible because it just it makes you feel good as a hockey fan and it makes you feel good as an american i gotta say with miracle and with this movie the last minute of that soviet game has me on the edge of my seat. I know how it turns out, but I, I'm still on the edge of my seat holding my breath to see what happens because just the, the dramatic tension that that game represented comes through so well. Amen to that. And like you, like Gary was saying too, the actual story and the stories surrounding the whole Olympics in Lake Placid, upstate New York, just the state of the, the U.S. wasn't at its best to say the least. And then the Olympics themselves, people had trouble getting to Lake Placid, buses breaking down, mm -hmm. ticket problems. Even the broadcast itself, I, I think it was tape delayed or something before people were able to see it here in, in, in the U.S. because 
Right. That's, uh, that's true. The, the game was scheduled for five o'clock. But it was scheduled long before anybody knew that the Americans would be playing the Soviets in the Metal Round game. So the network wanted to move it up to prime time so everybody could see it, but the Soviet team refused. They said it's scheduled for 5, we're playing at 5. So the network compromised, and they played the game at 5, but they tape-delayed it and only broadcast it at 8. Yeah, so just... just which makes the documentary really worth your while to check out, because it, it's that's what happened. That's the true story. You really couldn't script it absolutely unbelievable everything that that went on around it and and the unlikely outcome yeah people didn't even pick the u.s to to be in the top five at the end of the olympics let alone go toe-to-toe with the greatest team in the world at the time and beat them and then go on to win uh win the gold but yeah the other great thing about the the documentary too is that you really get an appreciation of what a genius coach herb brooks was and uh he's legendary in the in the state of minnesota he's a coach there and even if if you're a hockey fan uh, outside the wild arena i believe that's where his his statue is a la like a rocky balboa except this he was the real thing and and, and genius so really absolutely you can't say enough about it but leading up to the 2004 disney movie which like gary said is entitled miracle where kurt russell portrayed coach brooks and did a very very good job at doing that uh, the the actual story was so much better and more incredible than any you know, made-up hollywood script that the movie wasn't too far off from the truth which gives the documentary a little bit like you said uh, using the actual footage and and telling the story the way it happened really just un, un, unbelievable and james so unbelievable. i mean yeah Something you may not know, and I didn't know until I saw it doing some research around this topic. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there was a movie that was made about this incident that was released in 1981, one year after The Miracle on Ice. And Jim Craig, the goalie for Team USA, was played by Steve Gutenberg. Oh, I see. I did not know. That is a tidbit and a half. It yeah. was made for TV, if I understand the story correctly, but I did not know that. Steve Gutenberg. Steve wow. Gutenberg. One year later. Now you know Jim Craig, really. Okay, yeah, you won the gold medal, you beat the Russians, but now that must have really made him legitimate. Mm-hmm. So. Nicely done. That's a great tidbit there, Gary. You got it. Um, and then just the final part on, uh, I mean, we could talk about this all day, just the we're gushing over it, and, and I think any American or any hockey fan out there would agree. But what it did to help the sport of hockey, especially in the U.S., tremendously helping deck hockey, roller hockey, ice hockey in America. Uh, Lord knows how many young uh, Americans decided to become hockey players just from that experience. And um, in Olympics since then, and even now that they're bringing back the World Cup of Hockey this September, the U.S. is in pretty good hands. I mean, we've had a pretty darn good roster of American-born hockey players out there that have thrived in the NHL and in the Olympics, too. Yeah. I mean, just watching the documentary today made me want to play hockey. Not that it takes a lot to make me want to play hockey, but just sitting there watching it, I wanted to strap on the pads right then and there because it was just so exciting, you know. So, uh, and I, I wanted to feel that that euphoria of competition, which anybody who plays a any sport really, but uh, particularly hockey, understands. And yeah, just to contradict myself from 
closing out the story uh, to to reiterate your point before how you knew the outcome of the game but still you're on the edge of your seat watching the game versus Russia the other thing about that to mount the tension that was already mm-hmm. there was the US took the lead a one goal lead with 10 minutes left in the third period which when you hear Michael Ruzioni telling the story it just felt like forever you see you know he kept looking up at the clock and he was hoping that it, when he'd look up again the five minutes have passed but it was only a couple of seconds so just really absolutely incredible yeah absolutely incredible in the the miracle movie you hear Kurt Russell saying, oh, too much time and keep telling the players to play your game. That's not Hollywood embellishment. That's actually what Herb Brooks was saying to his players on the bench. And it's, you know, it's amazing to think now that a sporting event, an Olympic game, particularly a sport that isn't that popular in this country, it's amazing to think what kind of impact that can have on on people on americans all over the country it's just today that kind of thing doesn't seem possible because i guess we've become such a uh, such a global society and 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 we have so many different outlets for everything but back in 1980 this 36 years ago this one event united the whole country and it was just an incredible experience. I, I wish I had lived through it. I, as I said, I wasn't born yet, but it's it must have been for anybody who did live through it. It must have been a once in a lifetime thing to witness that. Amen. And uh, like you said too, the HBO documentary did an excellent job of portraying that because, like you said, it was true. That's what happened. They didn't have to embellish on anything, and they just tell the story the way it was, as unbelievable as it was. And excellent point too about the sport itself where a lot of people to this day, at least in in our circles, consider hockey, oh, it's Canadian, it's foreign, it's on ice, I don't want to skate, blah, 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 which, you know, it's a beautiful, it's a great sport. It's a terrific sport, but yeah, okay, fine. It's not America's pastime baseball, or the NFL is just eating everybody's lunch nowadays anyway. (laughs) But really, that example is the pinnacle of what hockey can do and it's true just kind of like the uh the black sheep of the family that uh in terms of sports to resonate and lift a country up and and my humble opinion the greatest country in the world in the u.s (laughs) was just that much more incredible all right so i think we've talked enough about the miracle on ice uh i think everybody agrees it was a incredible thing won't be duplicated and uh it's awesome moving on That, that with that brilliant transition I should be in radio. So James and I recently took a bit of a road trip, a small road trip, to visit our favorite baseball team, the New York Mets, as they left for spring training. But it got us thinking about road trips in deck hockey and going out to different places that you may not have played before, uh, unfamiliar places, and how do we prepare for some place that we haven't played before? What's the process? What's the difference? How is one spot different from another uh one surface different from another so that's a little conversation we want to have right now yeah and particularly from the goalies point of view like we're saying we're used to playing in a in a a park so it's kind of an enclosed area one of the tournaments that we participated in was on a side street in brooklyn and just for a goalies point of view the depth perception must really be a little odd for you. I'm just curious if, if you'd elaborate on that. For example, if you're on a street and it's crossing an intersection and you're on one side of the ice per se, in your goal, looking out 
and not seeing a barrier behind the other goal must really make it seem like it goes on forever and ever. Is uh, that something that kind of plays with your mind a little bit, needs adjusting in terms of picking up the puck or, or things like that? Absolutely. I mean, anybody who's tried to sell a house knows that if you have people coming in for an open house, then you want you don't want your house to look cluttered. You want it to look as sparse as possible because that makes it look bigger, less closed in, less uh, cluttered there is around you. Your brain looks at that and thinks, oh, this is uh, there's more space here than there actually is. And I guess part of that has to do with uh, peripheral vision part of that has to do with linear relationships i don't know i'm not a brain scientist ask ben carson but what i do know <laughs> is that when you're outside that effect gets magnified even more so if you're at the end of a street it's different than if you're playing on a court because the sides aren't as closed in right so it's not like you're playing with uh boards on either side you have your playing surface but then it kind of goes off a bit on either side as well plus as you said the end of the street it is it goes on forever so it's unfamiliar it's unfamiliar in terms of what you're looking at and it's unfamiliar in terms of what as you said what you perceive as depth perception so yeah those definitely take more getting used to as a goalie because i'm used to standing and not just that one particular area. Anytime you go to a new place, if it's not kind of your standard court configuration that you're used to or rink configuration that you're used to, it's going to look different because you're, as a goalie, you're standing with your back to the net. So you rely on certain visual cues on the other side of the court or the rink. Um, most specifically the other net but other things as well you rely on those visual cues to kind of orient yourself in relation to your own net because you can't usually turn your head around and see where the posts are you can also kind of bang your stick against the posts to get an idea of where you are goalies often will do that but it's a lot easier to kind of orient yourself based on what you can see because if you're trying to position yourself to make a save or if you make a save and you find yourself out of position and you're trying to regroup it's not always going to be a, a situation where you have time to bang your stick against the post or, or you don't want to go feeling for the post because that's going to take you out of the moment so yeah it's it's sometimes it can take a while of actually playing to orient yourself to your actual surroundings based on where you are. And uh, it's definitely something that you need to adjust to as a goalie. Yeah, not making excuses here either, which excellent points, by the way. Like you said, you can't scout players. You can't scout the playing area. Uh, it's not the NHL, obviously. So the arenas aren't the same and the playing surfaces aren't more or less exact. Although, uh, James, I'm sorry to interrupt, but sure. did you know that according to the NHL rulebook, rinks don't have to be a certain length by a certain width. They just have to be symmetrical for each team. So you could have all kinds of... A team could theoretically have all kinds of funky configurations. You know, each arena could have its own ice configuration as long as each side is symmetrical for for each team. Nowadays, the ice surface is standardized, but a lot of older buildings, before the new arenas and the new stadiums were built, oftentimes with the older buildings, you would find one ice surface that was a lot bigger or a lot smaller than others. So uh, that's something that you may not be aware of. 
I wasn't aware of the rules per se, but just as being a fan and learning of the hallowed grounds of the Boston Garden, where uh, the likes of Bobby Orr played, yeah, I always heard that that was a little shorter than other ice surfaces around the NHL at the time. So that that's that's pretty interesting. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like baseball where you have a little quirk here or there. Obviously, the the diamond is is the same in every major league baseball stadium but foul territory could be much different sure. the outfield could be completely different like fenway park to go back to boston as well mm-hmm. so for our purposes in deck hockey yeah i mean it's not that drastic in I'll, the nhl obviously i'll do you do one better it doesn't even have to be wide open you could in theory plop the penalty boxes right down at center ice as long as there is equal room on both sides really yeah like i said it just has to be symmetrical okay what <laughs> Okay, <laughs> you may be onto something there. <laughs> yeah, get more uh, get more ratings or whatever the mm-hmm. case may be. But uh, I would prefer that being a defenseman, seeing a stupid guy trying to go around the uh, mm-hmm. the penalty box. <laughs> At least yeah. I know where he's going before he's going. That that would be nice. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. So getting back to the, the deck hockey uh, leagues and, and and tournaments. Also, with the depth perception, does that affect? how you view and react to a shot. For example, in some leagues, slap shots are allowed and others they're not. If a player is taking a snapshot off of you and you're looking at the puck, obviously, or, or the player himself, but then with your peripheral vision, you're also seeing the street that doesn't end in the back. Does that kind of mess with your timing a little bit? Um, yeah, I guess it can. But again, that kind of goes back to the idea of orienting yourself and having to know where you are in relation to your net, especially if you don't have a crease drawn. That can also be a difficulty in terms of orienting yourself. But you get a... Yes, I would say early in the game, if you're not familiar with the place you're playing on your depth perception can definitely take some adjustment to to get it right but once you get a feel for the surface you kind of get an idea of where the puck is in relation to everything else it's just that it's a learning curve so no no i was just gonna so if you are a goalie and you have the opportunity to get some practice time on that unfamiliar surface absolutely do it you know if if you have the opportunity yeah, I was just going to say thank you for that as a uh, friendly reminder to our goalies who probably, no, not probably, they are the most important players on the hockey team, is when you do go to a new place to play that you're unfamiliar with, definitely try and take shots in different areas and uh, don't kill your goalie, don't shoot at his head, but uh, shoot at his blocker or his glove, obviously his pads, so he could get the uh, leg saves going as well, but Take smart shots on your goalie when you're warming up and when you're trying to warm him up just for that reason. Because if you're used to playing in a certain area, if you're in a gym, let's say, and then you're playing outside on a street, or if you're playing in an enclosed roller hockey rink, you need to adapt to that. And your goalie is your most important player out there. So if you want to win, you need him to be or her to be at the top of his or her game. So do what you can when you're warming him up or her up to give that person the best chance to get adapted as quickly as possible. And then hopefully when the game starts, your goalie will be all set and and prepared as, as possible. Thank you, James. As a goalie, I appreciate that. 
Well, as a defenseman, we love you guys. So our job is to make sure that you don't have to face any shots. So anytime a shot is taken, it's the failure on the defensive part. So we love you guys and, and gals out there. So God bless you all. Yeah, all right. And then just yeah, the final point, at least for me, on the uh, on the road again topic is that obviously the, the puck slash ball reacts differently on a curved street or on a flat gym floor or a bumpy handball court. So that affects the speed of the game. Whereas if you can make longer passes because of a truer surface on a gym floor, as opposed to keeping the game a little tighter, because if you're on a bumpy surface, you can't pass as long or take shots as far off because the, you can't control the puck. Do you feel that as a goalie going to a new area, an unfamiliar area that the pace is a lot faster and you feel yourself even if you're facing shots or when your team is in the zone, that the other team is bringing a lot more pressure on you a lot more frequently than usual? Yes and no. Um, I would say yes, obviously, if you're on a smooth surface, then the puck is going to move quicker and potentially you will be facing more shots, or at least the shots will be getting to you quicker. But that being said, the pace of play is always dictated by the players. So if you have players that are slowing the game down intentionally because it's a strategy or for whatever reason, then obviously that's going to take precedence over the surface that that you're playing on. What I will say is a much bigger factor than the surface that you're playing on in terms of speeding up the game is the size of the area, the the court, the rink that you're playing on. If you have uh, walls tight into you or relatively tight, if it's a a small rink or a a small court that you're playing on, then that game is going to move a lot faster because the ball is going to come off the walls a lot quicker and potentially, depending on how many players you have playing, whether it's three four five skaters at a time and uh just for you the listener a reminder skaters is here defined on this podcast as any non-goalie player in a deck hockey game for an explanation on why we call those players skaters please see episode two of the hit the deck podcast so yeah if depending on whether you have three four five skaters out there that game can change pace a lot. Uh, if you have a lot of people out there and you have a small surface, then you can it can actually slow down quite a bit because there's not a lot of room for people to go. But if you have a, a reduced number of players with a small surface, that game is going to speed up like crazy because they have room to run around and the puck doesn't have a lot of room to shoot around. So there's a lot of factors involved in uh, determining what the speed of the game is. The best advice that I can offer is you just kind of have to take it as it comes. I mean, you can anticipate to a degree what it's going to be based on the conditions, but it's not like a linear formula like, oh, well, the surface is smooth, so I'm going to be facing a super fast game, or the surface is rough, so I can take a nap between each shot. All right, great. Yeah, and uh, that's part of the fun of participating in uh, deck hockey tournaments and, and other leagues, is that 
you have to be on your toes and it's a little bit different from here to there and keeps it interesting and, and hopefully keeps players wanting to play more and uh, enjoy themselves a lot more. So, one more, just one more thing sure. I will point out from a goalie perspective is if you are playing on an open area like the tournament that we mentioned, which was the Rocky Sullivan's tournament. Yeah, and, and just as a teaser, we will be talking more about deck hockey tournaments next episode. So we will absolutely mention the Rocky Sullivan's tournament and have the complete details on their upcoming tournament in, in, in April. Ooh, coming soon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But the reason why I bring up the Rocky Sullivan's tournament is because that, as I said, is on a street. And the street itself is the playing surface. The sidewalk is the sidelines, but there's no boards. So a situation like that, as a goalie, you're going to be have to be on your toes in terms of where the puck is going and, more importantly, how you can handle it. Some goalies are primarily, uh, they prefer to freeze the puck if it's near them. Some goalies, such as myself, prefer to stick handle the puck away from them in a controlled manner because that's just that's just the game. You know, it's every goalie has a different style. But in a situation like that, you might need to be more conscious of the fact that you do need to freeze it because if you try and stick handle it, it could easily go out of play since there are no boards. So that is one very uh, notable wrinkle that is injected into that kind of surface. Yeah, and just to reiterate, uh, to reiterate, I should say, it just keeps it a lot more interesting and fun when you're participating in different deck hockey surfaces and, and in different tournaments, so to speak. So uh, we definitely recommend you go out there and, and see what else is uh, uh, that the world of deck hockey has to offer. So with that, let's go take a look into the gear bag and um, a product that... Speaking oh, of surfaces... Exactly. This is an excellent, excellent uh, segue. Uh, a product that Gary and I have both tested out is called the Hockey Wraparound. And we're not talking about the play, but... Matto! The... Matto! Matto! <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> um, they have a website. It's uh, hockeywraparound.us. And according to the site, and this is a quote from them. The hockey wraparound allows you to use your favorite ice hockey stick off of the ice without fear of damaging the blade. And what this particular item is, it's a piece of thin stainless steel with teeth that is designed to well wrap around the blade of the stick, protecting the blade from being worn down from concrete. So like we said, Gary and I have uh, tested the, the product out ourselves. They did make a wraparound for a goalie stick. The last time I went to the website, I didn't see it available. I'm not saying that it is not, but just um, wanted to clarify that. Actually, because... James, I was able to get a goalie wraparound uh, on the inline warehouse site today. Oh, excellent. So uh, in, given that what you said, I thought they uh, might be a little scarce at the moment and I wanted to pick one up to replace the one that I have now because it's certainly getting worn down through repeated use. So uh, just FYI, both the goalie and the uh, forward slash uh, defense wraparound style are available currently on the inline slash ice warehouse sites. Um, and we'll actually post links to that on the Facebook page. So Cool. All right. The assist to Mr. Rhino Mac. Um, and again, yeah, th like they said, they are specific to emphasize that the wraparound is designed for practice and not necessarily for in-game play. So the 
good thing about that is it's very well designed so you can practice your shot when you're not on the ice and you're not going to wear down your blade because Lord knows hockey sticks and blades are really expensive. And for non-professionals like we are, we have to pay for these things out of pocket. So we like to take care of our equipment and make it last as long as possible. Again, Mr. Gary Mack had some great uh, tidbits on how to preserve his goalie gear in the previous podcast so definitely check that out but um we have used the wraparound in-game situations so the surface that we play on is a handball court and it's very rough so concrete concrete right and uh, it's very bumpy so when you put the wraparound on your stick and then you're able to tape the stick as usual the blade as you would if you did not have the wraparound on it so uh, it doesn't add that much bulk to the the blade itself so you're still able to puck handle if it's with a puck or a ball it doesn't affect that much the um and it conforms sorry james it conforms to the blade of your stick so no matter how big a curve you have or what the angle of your blade is then it'll still fit without a problem absolutely and the website says that the wraparound usually adds about 40 grams to the weight of your stick overall. So it it makes it a little bit heavier um, when you're stick handling it. You could feel it. And um, so that's that's good for muscle memory and development as well with the forearms and whatnot. But uh, I I recommend it at least checking it out. It's about $30, at least on the Hockey Wraparound website with additional shipping. Um, I'm assuming that is probably around the same price on the uh, inline warehouse and ice warehouse websites. Uh, the goalie one's a little more expensive. I, I didn't check the forward stick. Yeah, the, the, the forwards is about uh, 30 bucks a pop. So it's worth it, especially if you have a very expensive uh, blade, which those things could, the blade itself could uh, cost upwards of 50 and above. So... Although I would like to point out that the Hockey Wraparound site mentions that they have a couple of different models. One is the one you mentioned. The 40-gram one is meant for practice and can be used in game situations. They also have a another model that's a little bit thinner and a little bit lighter that's not meant to be used for shooting. It's only meant to be used to practice passing and stick handling. Last minute yeah. training in the podcast. Oh, okay. Um, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, so they have different options for you for how you want to use the wraparound, and I recommend it, so go out and check it out. Sweet. Okay, so um, that being said, I guess that'll wrap up the uh, third episode of the hit the deck podcast thank you so much for checking us out if you the listener have a question or a comment or a concern or just want to shoot us anything at all really you can email us at hit the deck at gmail.com again that's hit the deck d-e-k like uh, deck hockey which we're discussing at gmail.com on facebook and on instagram we are at hit the deck and on twitter we are at hit the deck pod we would like to thank as always anthony sajazi for music pops for being the voice of the podcast and the liq for helping us out with other sound stuff and please by all means feel free to subscribe to this podcast on itunes james is there anything you would like to close us out with yes with it being our third episode and the threes being important in hockey with the hat trick i'm throwing my hat so thank you very much (laughs) thank you very much james and finally one last friendly reminder it's deck hockey don't be that guy thanks everybody (laughs) 